you have reached the voice mailbox of Game Thing Season 5 Code. You have 18 new messages. Thursday, the 27th of April at 5:02 p.m. Hey Pippin, this one's firmly in the lifestyle category of questions I had for this season. Um, which is to say, you know, like all media I come into orbit with, I'm going to be a little skeptical going in of how truthful it may be, but I still think there could be some truth in it. And, oh, I should probably tell you what it is. So my next pick for our season on games, exploring coding and computational thinking is One Dreamer, uh, developed by F2 House, published by the same in 2022. The game's official text says, quote, Manipulate the world around you by editing source code in an adventure game about a burnt-out indie game developer's quest to fulfill a lifelong dream. Or, as I saw it discussed on Reddit, this is a, quote, lo-fi logic adventure about making indie games. Um, which is not my life, you know. I've spent, uh, definitely spent a good deal of my life, no, career, on the other side of this particular aisle. And, um, you know, I think we'll have some good stuff to say to each other um, through playing this. Um, this says that this has, quote, realistic but easy to understand pseudocode puzzles based on C sharp. Edit over 350 snippets of code from Frank's Toaster to playable mini games. No idea what any of that means because I haven't played yet. Um, and I guess maybe more so than Quadrilateral Cowboy, this is our first real taste of a grounded, though still it looks kind of dreamy dip into what games think coding looks like. Um, there's a pair of Steam reviews, which is a uh, perpetual unfailing font of wisdom and truth that I think sums up you know, the mindset going in for us pretty well. One is from a player with .3 hours on record who said, Quote, as a game dev student, this made me cry. Another with six hours on record said, story is okay, and there's plenty of it. As a software dev, the game felt a lot like being at work. Um, so maybe there's something here we can really observe and uh, dive into together, and I think you could definitely help shed light on. Um, I don't want to cast it in a bad negative tone, but it, it, it seems like there's something here <laughs> just from those two reviews about how the flowers of dreams get so trampled on with code. Okay, see you on the other side, Pippin. Thursday, the 27th of April at 8.17 p.m. Hey, David. All right, let's do this. One dreamer. Uh, let me quote one more a piece of description from the Steam page just to orient ourselves a teensy-wee bit before playing, um, and that is, quote, Help Frank, a burnt-out indie game developer, rediscover his love for video games while struggling to release his debut title. Reprogram objects, fix bugs, and solve coding puzzles as you journey through the story of one dreamer. End quote. And I think that that will be an interesting kind of touchstone in that I'm very curious about the way that the game, from looking at its trailers and reading its descriptions and stuff, the way that it foregrounds code, 
um, as something that you're going to be doing, kind of as the main thing that you're going to be doing, right? Like all of the sort of action verby stuff um, in the game's description is all about code um, of some sort of, you know, C-sharp pseudocode to be specific, uh, which makes me think that the game was probably made in Unity. Uh, but then alongside that idea that you're going to be working with code is this very, very emotional relationship to video games that I I take it that the creator of this game has and that the creator in this game has, Frank, and possibly other people too, because in the trailer there is certainly a, what sounds at least like a young woman's voice saying very passionate uh, and moved, um, if not necessarily moving for me yet, stuff about games like, quote, I remember a time when video games were everything to me, when they saved me. Maybe things were different back then. Maybe it was a simpler time, but the memories I have of adventures, of friendships, of people coming together, I want to keep them alive, and I want to make sure they're passed on to the next generation, end quote. So super heady stuff, right? Uh, and Well, so super hearty stuff, stuff of the heart. It's, um, it's not surprising to me that people report crying six times uh, when they play the game, for instance. It seems like it's really tugging on the heartstrings. But is it, is it going to tug on our heartstrings with code? That's what I'm, I'm extremely curious about. Um, and this foregrounding of code, at least in the description, reminds me a lot of how game studies, um, the academic study, especially of video games, used to, or maybe still does, but used to think about rules and mechanics, and I guess therefore code to some extent, with the sort of primary nature of games. Like that's what games really are, is the code and the rules, um, more than they are narratives or visuals. So will that hold true here, do we think? Let's play. Friday, the 28th of April at 10.52 a.m. Hey, Pippin, it's David, just calling you... Um with some thoughts after spending some time with one dreamer last night. So yeah, as we've mentioned, you um, play as a game developer named Frank. The game opens with you uh, missing a phone call, making some coffee, uh, listening to some voicemails. Who uses voicemail in 2022 um, when this game came out? Although I don't know if that's when it's set. Um, and there's just a bunch of messages reminding you, uh, you're deep in debt and, you know, you're just sort of trying to push yourself to get going on another work day to work on your, uh, independent freelance software projects. And it seems to me more than anything I've really seen elsewhere, um, one dreamer embodies this sort of tunnel vision you can get um on the computer like the experience i'm sure you've had that i've had um you, know, you sit to use the computer and do some stuff and then you push away from your desk and somehow it's just hours and hours later and so the way coding enters into this game is aside from sitting at the computer and doing uh literal jobs which so far are these kind of crass satirical uh unsubtle uh, gigs as a contractor that are basically like, hey, make this other game project worse by enabling digital rights management or inserting ads. Um, and you do it in this sort of, I'm sure you'll be able to speak to it more than I can, um, just 
managing logic in a true-false uh, way. Uh, so, you know, like, the tunnel vision kicks in where, like, you, you, you push away from the computer and you can go to a door and it's locked and you set the door's status or state um, as being locked to be false and then it unlocks, which I think it's been a long time since I've played it. I think the last time I saw a game that did something like this was Battle, or, excuse me, Mega Man Battle Network, um, which was also the game that gave us the decades-old meme that was something to the effect of everybody is unhappy on the internet. Uh, prescient, prescient. Um, broad statement, but prescient. Um, but it also made me think of uh, stories I've heard people tell me in my Don't Die interviews about their experiences using computers and the internet early on. Um, you know, this thing sort of often gets attributed to video games. I think Tetris Effect, in a way, is a game about this, too. Um, so no Steam review this time. I'll just quote from an interview um, I did with a journalist who covered the rise of the internet in the 90s. Um, she said, I remember when I was using email and FTP and shared file folders on a network and things like that. I, in my mind, getting out of work as I would be relaxing and shifting from a, from work to a non-work mode mentality, uh, I would sometimes see in my mind that stupid Microsoft icon of files going into the garbage cans or leaving the garbage can. I remember it just literally being emptied, the trash being emptied in that stupid, stupid Microsoft animation. So I'm not saying the games are the only thing that can do that. TV can do this. I'm guessing magazines had an outside influence back in the day, magazine advertising. Um, and she just goes on to say, in general, pop culture has this effect. So I think the last time I run into this myself personally was playing The Witness by Jonathan Blow and just walking around. You see the ways um, the world around you is filled with round nodes and lines. But The Witness was a game about perception. One Dreamer is about, well, one dreamer, Frank. And as far as I've gotten in, it's again, it's another game where you jump into the game world. Um, you enter a game, you it's apparently the game you abandon, and largely you hear frustrated players upset that you gave up on the game, talking as though you cannot hear them. Um, and you can do stuff, you know, in that world too, in this, in this weird fantasy world, um, like set a butterfly to false, um, and it disappears and becomes less colorful, which could be viewed as a compassionate act, as a way to, you know, maybe make them less attractive to predators. But I think it's also a pretty surreal thing. Nobody in this world would want to make butterflies less colorful. Like, I mentioned flowers being trampled, and I don't want to make too much of a thing of it, but I think there's this thing, whether games are narratives or code, there's something about knowing about all the in-between space. Um, things are less magical. Friday, the 28th of April, at... 9.53 p.m. Hey, good evening, David. Uh, getting on for 10 here in the household. Um, sort of signing off for the day, really. <laughs> it's my bedtime. Past my bedtime. I should be in bed reading right now. Uh, but I'm talking to you. I'm talking to your answer phone. Talking to our answer phone. And does knowing the in-between spaces make things less magical? I mean, I, th I think I get what you mean in the sense that if you know how the trick is done, then the trick kind of doesn't work. Um, on the other hand, if you know how the trick is done, um, 
you kind of have access to a different experience, right? Like the experience of the magician instead of the the audience member, the how do you do that, as they apparently call them. And I think that's, you know, there's a different literacy, there's a different enjoyment of a magic trick or of a video game that comes maybe when you see how it's made and grapple with, I guess, some of the decisions that are made and that that lead to the game that you play. Um, I don't I, I don't know if that's better or worse. I've always had a real liking for understanding the reasons behind video games, but obviously it doesn't work as well as a kind of entertainment experience in the in the, the straightforward sense. So who knows? Um, so one dreamer, I've played a bunch now, I think I'm almost at three hours or something. Um, and of course I've been kind of focused in on the representation of code, uh, because that's, you know, that's kind of roughly what we're, what we're thinking about this season. Uh, and it's surprised me, I think, in its simplicity. It's very, very stripped back from what we've been seeing in the more sort of assembly language games, um, even quadrilateral cowboy, right? You at least, you, you type code in. Uh, but here in One Dreamer, as you said, you're presented with these kind of sort of programs. And to this point, what I've been doing, and I guess, you know, what you've been doing, is changing the values and variables, which is to say, um, like you said, like if there's a locked door, you look at a piece of code, it says door.locked equals true. And you are able, through a couple of clicks in the interface, to change that to door.locked equals false, and then the door opens. And thus far, almost everything has been variations on that. Occasionally there are some um, kind of little um, puzzly ideas there where they might hide the answer or hide your ability to change a value uh, by forcing you to look at other files. Um, but by and large, I, I found it straightforward. I wonder, has it also seemed extremely straightforward to you? And do you think that you know a little bit more about C-sharp, um, its syntax, it, its ways of working and representing the world? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Friday, the 28th of April, at 9.56 p.m. Fix the goddamn servers already! Lag, lag, lag. It's the only reason I ever die. You're holding... Friday, the 28th of April, at 11.16pm. Pippin, we are leaving messages for two. Buddy, this answer phone has two daddies. And uh, I don't know about you, sometimes I call in and sing to our voicemail, or I play it... Um, answer phone, make your machine smarter CDs. Did you know it... Favors classical music, but it's an hour of NPR, not a single minute longer, and then off to bed. Um, well, soon I'll be off to bed myself, too, like I assume you are here. So, yeah, uh, One Dreamer, the coding here, even I know and can tell, it's very, very stripped back, bare bones. I still always hold out hope in these games that will get so complicated I won't understand. Um... Because I've had this feeling, you know, because I know nothing of code, though I'm a little familiar with some of the phonetics now, though couldn't tell you a single thing um, 
if you asked me, maybe if you reminded me, I could tell you some stuff at this point. Um, but I've always had this feeling that all the coding we've been seeing in games is dumbed down in some way, or maybe because of the way it's being presented, um, dare I say the word gamified, that it's it's got the corners knocked off a bit. But I also assume I'm wrong about that, though pecking at C-sharp stuff here, I'm like, oh, this is way easier <laughs> than I thought it would be. Reminds me a little bit of just like pulling pegs out and putting them back in on a light bright. Um, but my mind goes back to this question you asked, which I think we should keep asking is, is the code here going to tug on our heartstrings? Um, and there's a sequence I want to talk about. I think we've logged the same amount of time, so I think you're roughly where I am, so maybe you've hit this point. Um, there's this whole sequence uh, in the in the preamble uh, where you're searching for the pages of the your manuscript to try to remember why is it you got started making this game. And you're going through revisiting a bunch of your memories. You go down uh, this hallway where you're adjusting the air conditioning and the fan, and then you're editing a bunch of terminals to switch on or off details about someone's backstory. I guess your backstory, uh, as your mom is dying in the hospital. And I think it's actually it's a rather elegant way of deploying code here, where you sort of turn off all these things about the character that were not true. You know, it says hobbies, false, friends, false, schools, false. Each one boosts their determination, um, and it also sort of lets you know a bit more about the character. Um, also makes me think of that novel, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, and I want to remember how they portrayed the hold games has on people. But my mind goes back to your question, is the code tugging on hard strings here? I watched a documentary earlier this week about TV showrunners, and there was some discussion, debate, across multiple talking heads of moves versus moments. And a, a show unveiling an evil twin is a move, but it does nothing for the story. So this sequence, is it a move, moment, meh? Saturday, the 29th of April, at 2.03 p.m. Hey, David. I don't think we talked about playing NPR to the baby, and I really wish that you had asked about it. I'm... You know what, Let, let's let's handle that over email. I don't want to get into it right now. But um, you identified a really important sequence that stood out to me too um, as the first really concerted attempt in this game and maybe most games that I've, that I've seen that do anything like this, um, that attempt to weave code and emotion together um, in service of the, of the story. So as you said, there's this, there's this bit where Frank is editing code to set various aspects of his life to false family, money, school, friends, hobbies, um, and a couple of other things. And in terms of interactivity, it's pretty basic. You, you, know, you go into a little tiny snippet of code, and all you do is say family equals false, and that's it. Um, but I think it's really admirable in terms of trying to make code say something more emotive than it has to this point in the game, uh, where it's largely been kind of functional whimsical, although that whimsy especially is something I'd like to get back to. Um, so I think it's pointing in an interesting direction. Um, but it's also true that it's kind of a blunt uh, instrument for telling a story, right? Like if we were writing this 
in prose, we might write, he had no friends, he had no money, he dropped out of school, he left behind his family, etc. It's not a lot of nuance going on there in terms of a character or a person that you get a, get a feel for. It's just like a bunch of negatives, right? A, a bunch of falses. And to some extent, that feels like a bit of an opportunity lost, because I think, you know, I think code probably can do more. I think it can be more nuanced and tell a more complicated story about those kinds of emotions um, through the use of things like uh, conditionals, um, maybe most especially code's ability to represent systems of interrelated values and variables and events and possibilities. Um, so it's hard not to wish that there were some more complex trade-offs um, involved in, in that sequence, for example, um, rather than just setting everything to false and you become more determined, maybe there could be a a greater interweaving um, of those aspects of, of a person's life, which, you know, after all, aren't all separate. We don't think of family and friends and our hobbies and our job and stuff as totally, totally siloed aspects. But that's kind of what the code points towards. And I don't know if that's that's something where trying to express this sort of thing, which, again, I think is very admirable and probably very difficult. Is it the case that code just kind of pushes you down these sorts of Cody avenues um, and that reaching a kind of subtlety or, or complexity is just really difficult? Um, or is it the case that this is a direction uh, that the game is pointing in that is well worth pursuing? Um, I think the latter. Um, I'm curious to even try it myself, to be honest. I think that the game really points towards some of that, you know, what we've talked about, which is, you know, can, can code be poetic? Can it be expressive? Um, here we're getting a strong yes, I think. Um, one of the other things about that sequence, just quickly though, um, you mentioned the air conditioner, and, and one of the things about the air conditioner puzzle, such as it is, uh, it wasn't very difficult, is that it does involve a conditional statement, um, an if statement, where you have to understand that you, you need to set a value to 20 or less because that is the thing that will trigger the if statement to do what you want. So the game is maybe slowly asking us to understand more complex codey things. Have you been running into anything um, further on like that? More complex codey things? Sunday, the 30th of April at 1.32 a.m. Hey, Pippin's David. Um, quick message before I go off to bed here. So yes, yes, I agree with uh, every word you said about that backstory sequence. It just felt worth singling out because I think it's the first real swing at doing something different with the skills um, that we're exploring and that this game is hinged on. And um, yeah, I played a bit more uh, today, meaning Saturday, not technically today, um, about an hour and uh, nothing more complex. It just seems like it's getting <clears throat> more convoluted, which is maybe harsh, because there's definitely a lot here that... I mean, One Dreamer is not exactly subtle or nuanced. I don't think it's trying to be. Maybe it's just that, like, for dreamers, there's no need to dream in subtle tones. Um, just the way things get more complex so far is it rolls out the ability, really the requirement, to develop relationships between multiple codable objects. So... Uh, this, and then rather than just typing values in, you now have to use a clipboard. But you can only copy certain values and only paste it into certain other places. 
So it's quite um, expansive but restrictive at the same time. And so this will sound uh, quite absurd to hear described, but one example is you have to make your way up a hill that's had an avalanche of electrical objects down it blocking your path. So there's an electrical sign, a microwave, and a vault door. You have to copy the sign's status when it's switched on so it makes the microwave turn on. Then you have to make it so the microwave door state mirrors the vault door, so one door opens another. Um, which, to borrow <clears throat> a phrase from you earlier this season, hey presto, pretty easy stuff. But the whole time I'm thinking, <laughs> wouldn't it just be easier to be able to type out some of this stuff? Um, but maybe as I'm describing this, is this the whimsy you're craving? And uh, also side bonus question. Um, in general, when we're being called upon so far to poke at code, what do you notice it's doing for the story or for Frank? And, ooh, bonus, bonus, bonus question. Is it just me who compulsively pokes into every opportunity to code here? Or are you doing that too? Okay, bye. Monday, the 1st of May at 10.03 a.m. Hey, good morning, David. It is pouring outside and windy in Montreal. And I played more One Dreamer yesterday and I got up to kind of the place you were talking about, uh, which is this point at which the game makes puzzles by asking you to weave together different files, as you said. So you might have a lamp, which can be enabled, which is to say you can turn it on and off, and then you want a door um, to be unlocked, but currently it's it's locked, value is set to true, and there's no way to set it to false, which is weird because that's not how programming works. You would just normally type in locked equals false, but you can't. But what you can do, as you said, is copy the lamp's um, enabled value, so like lamp.enabled, which we know is true when we turn the lamp on, and you're able to copy that into the door so that the door's locked setting is dependent on the lamp's on-off setting. And that way, if you turn on the lamp, the door becomes locked, and if you turn off the lamp, the door becomes unlocked. So you're kind of wiring them together. And in programming, um, a word that you partially use for this is global variables, which is the idea that you have variables which store important information and your program can kind of see those variables from everywhere. And <laughs> generally, global variables are not considered to be a very good idea um, because they can end up creating all of these dependencies in your program that are difficult to unpick because you're sort of, you know, using a variable in one file that's defined in another file that might be changed in a different file and some of the kind of semantics of what your program means and the structure of how your program works becomes really obfuscated by that, which is which is why it makes for a kind of useful puzzle mechanic, right? So again, it's this idea of making, using some of the sort of the, the worst aspects of programming uh, as a way to sow confusion <laughs> and, and therefore make puzzles. And this is a puzzle game, so it makes sense, but it's it's interesting in that it makes Frank's programming chops uh, seem a little questionable at times. He's like doing all kinds of crazy stuff just to unlock a door with code when he should just type the word false. 
Um, and there's another word, actually, I should say for this in object-oriented programming specifically, which this game is very much about. Um, you know, the lamp is an object, the door is an object. We talk about um, in programming the idea of encapsulation, the idea that no object should be directly changing values inside another object. Um, but again, that's what's happening here, and that's okay. Now, the, the whimsy that I was interested in um, was some of the stuff you can do to um, sort of arbitrarily change values to weird, to weird settings and see these funny results. You know what I mean? Monday, the 1st of May, at 11.29 a.m. When did things become like this? Monday, the 1st of May, at 11.56 a.m. Hey, Pippin. It's David. Good morning. On a uh, truly sluggish, rainy Monday morning, uh, I want to read a couple things to you. Um, from an interview with the developer for GameDeveloper.com on October 2022, uh, in which he says a couple things about what we're talking about here. One is, quote, I made codable objects as visual as possible so the player could pick up programming concepts through feedback rather than having to learn them from tutorials. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to show the 30-plus lines of code that would probably be needed in a real-world use case goes on to say that the language is pretty much C-sharp. Um, he just removed and shortened some of the logic to present it as a short, readable snippet for the player and made sure all the variables slash function names were intuitive. Uh, my goal, he says, was to show the logic in each code file in under uh, 12 files. Um, dot, dot, dot. I want the player to read as little as possible and will hide, quote, real code, end quote, behind functions like, quote, do complex logic, parentheses, close quote, um, or exclude them all together. Um, which I think is, as I said, and you said, and we know, and I know that you know a little bit better how to explain it and understand um, the sort of shell game stuff hidden behind the curtain that's going on in the programming, um, which I think we talked a little bit in Quadrilateral Cowboy, have to imagine the flavor of it here is quite different. Um, you know, again, it's hiding complexity with you, but it's having you do fake code that is real code, um, which is <laughs> a little mentally dissonant, right, to think about. Um, and maybe you can speak to that a bit more. Um, but mainly I wanted to talk about this thing that you were talking about, like how this is like, quote unquote, like not good programming. And it may very well be that uh, Frank is not a good coder. Who am I to judge? Like, short of something not running at all or producing, like, an ugly error message. It'd have to be explained to me what, quote, not good coder means. Um, I can tell you it's mentioned in the game repeatedly. Frank is not very good at playing games, which I wonder, Pippin, do you feel like you are very good at games? Do people assume because of them you make them you must be? Be? You must be? Told you it's sluggish today. Uh, does one skill have anything to do with the other, though? Um, but, okay, so I want to hear about that, but also, like, can you say more things about the whimsy? Talk of the whims, Pippin. Almost called you Frank. Talk of the whims, that's whims with a Z, mind you. Goodbye. Monday, the 1st of May, at 1.25 p.m. Hey, David. 
Well, I assume that Frank must be a pretty decent coder if he put together this giant VR project, uh, Proxy Life. Apparently, just completely solo. Um, but certainly some of the programming practices that we see in One Dreamer are a bit sketchy. Um, but, you know, as I've said, it's kind of sketchy on purpose because it's a way of making tricksy, tricksy stuff um, that's hard to understand and therefore functions as a puzzle. Uh, but let me lean back in my chair and deliver to you my treatise on whimsy, uh, which is that I think one of the absolute best things about this game um, and kind of one of the absolute best things about programming, from my perspective, um, is the ways in which it allows you to play with code um, instead of just target a solution. And it doesn't do this all the time. It's, um, it's all too rare from my perspective. Um, but when it happens, I feel like it really gets across the idea of code uh, you know, as alive and strange and funny um, and powerful. Um, and just a couple of examples of this whimsy. So there's a duck. Um, I think it's a duck. Uh, early on, um, and you can edit its code. You don't need to, but, you know, as we do, we walk past it. We see we can. We try. And it turns out that the things you can do with the duck are just change the sound it makes. Uh, you can change it from a quack to a meow, for example. Um, and it becomes a duck that meows. Or you can change its sprite so it wears a different little outfit and looks a bit comical. And this has nothing to do with making it through the game. Um, but it is this little window into what I think is a really neat thing about programming, which is that it has no opinion. Um, you know, the code, the computer, it has no opinion on the aesthetics of your project or what things should look like or sound like. It will plug things together just as you ask um, if you get it right. And so it doesn't mind a, a meowing duck. That's all fine. And the thing about that is um, that when you treat code in this way, you get this kind of exploratory experience or playful experience um, or conversational experience where you're not just doing what you think you need to do because of your massive game design document or game design manuscript. I'm not sure why they call it a manuscript in this game. Um, instead, you are exploring potentials and perhaps even designing with the code as a kind of a collaborator, right? Uh, which is something I've been interested in for this season in general. I mean, just as another example, uh, there's a Pong puzzle much later on where Luna, um, your collaborator, is much better at Pong than you, uh, but you can edit the game to give yourself advantages um, so that, for example, your paddle is faster, hers is slower, your paddle is bigger, hers is smaller, and that's, that's a way that you can win. And that's, you know, that's exactly this idea of using code as a form of design. I literally released a game called Unfair Pong back in 2012 with precisely these um, properties, right? And so I think this is a, those are moments, again, all too rare, where the game is really about code in this, I think, very significant way. And I, I wonder what you made of that. Monday, the 1st of May, at 4.35 p.m. Hey, Pippin, it's David. I'm out, hopefully, literally dancing between the raindrops here. Because we can't always make rational choices. What kind of life is that? And uh, that's kind of, I think, very in the spirit of what you're asking about in One Dreamer. There's another portion later where, as I read in my first message, indeed, you can edit Frank's toaster and you can have it make the sound of a rocket launcher, um, other things, 
other things that don't have to be there that you can imagine it so you can build it. And the example you gave, I think, is uh, more fun if we want to be extreme nerds and create a hierarchy of fun. Maybe it's more fun, more whimsy, because it's the first time we see it. Um, And I think it's exactly, you know, what we've been talking about since the beginning of bringing game thing back, which is, that sure sounds to me like a small code done well, or a small moment that just didn't have to be there. Um, But once you see it, you can't get it out of your mind. And mainly, the main thing um, I can't get out of my mind is sort of much earlier, maybe it makes sense here to start closing our loops as the tape starts to um, wind down here. You know, I was sort of exploring from my first play session this thing with editing butterflies and just sort of semantically exploring. Um, not really saying what I really think. That's too private. I wouldn't call and tell you that. Um, I don't really th- you know, going back and forth on that thing you said off of what I said about does it, you know, lose its specialness if you know what's under the hood? And uh, I don't remember. I was reading or it was in some podcast. It was something I heard over the weekend. Um, an interview with these two doctors and they were talking about If you drill down as far as you can get, you know, atomically, you get to the atom, and you think, well, that's all there is. There's just atoms at the foundation of everything. Um, But they were talking about how actually there's just, like, all this looking into, you know, what's inside of the atom, and it goes down, it's turtles all the way down, it's whatever all the way down. And I don't think one... I don't think, like, if you stop drilling, like, it, it negates any sort of wonder. But I keep thinking, like, yes, keep drilling. It's it's only, like, the more confusing and complicated you can make it, the more fill of wonder and uh, more questions you can have. So, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm just telling you, like, I'd put that bird in a cool hat. Tuesday, the 2nd of May, at 11.20 a.m. Hey, good morning, David. It's Pippin. Uh, I was just wanting to give you a call to to keep drilling down on the drill metaphor. Uh, that idea that you know the the more we know about how things are are composed, whether it's it's bodies or armchairs or video games, the more kind of wonderful they are. And I think that there's a real truth to that. I think more knowledge is inherently exciting and empowering. Uh, But it's probably also true that it can kind of cut you off or distract you from some of the things that a video game as a work of art is kind of up to, or maybe you have to be able to kind of switch levels at will. Um, I always remember my friend um, Chad, who is is an environment artist, uh, lead environment artist, I should say, in the AAA industry. Um, We had both been playing Alan Wake, and we're talking about it, and... I'd been kind of talking about, like, oh, the guys were scary, and I was running away, and I was shining my flashlight at them, and it was very spooky. Like, you know, I was kind of at the level that the game was demanding from me. I was having, you know, in some sense, the right experience. But Chad, because 
he was an environmentalist, was really interested in and focused on kind of the trappings of the game, the way the world looked and felt uh, to be in. So he was less interested in the spooky zombie, shadow people. Um, and the main thing he told me about was how impressed he was by um, a shrub that he walked past and the way that that shrub looked and the way that it bent back realistically as he walked um, through it. And for him, that was a real source of wonder. And, and I've always admired that. And I think that, that that's often how I feel about games in terms of thinking about their implementation and the code and the other bits that make them tick. Um, but it's also true that it's a different way of, of experiencing a game, right? Um, but a wonderful way. And I think, again, you know, one dreamer is getting at this, right? This idea of playing what if with games, uh, you know, with that changing of the game of Pong in the game. Um, there's also a Flappy Bird implementation that you can play around with. Uh, it's a little instrumental because in both cases you're trying to win, but it's still that idea of like, oh, there's some flexibility here. And you could kind of ask yourself, well, what if Leon from Resident Evil 4 could climb down ladders as well as up them? Or what if we changed the camera angle in that game? Or what if the monsters just ignored us? And these are thoughts that we can really actively think um, if we're aware of the malleability of code and the changeability of, of these games, really, and especially if we decide to get behind the wheel of the code <laughs> um, ourselves and actually just change those things, you know? So maybe in the end, I don't know, the One Dreamer is pointing in that direction. I don't think it lets us go all the way, but I hugely admire that it at least has a some of a finger pointing that way. Tuesday, the 2nd of May, at... 11.48 a.m. Hey Pippin, it's David. Um, malleability of code is, I think, it's a good way to put it. I think ultimately it's also what One Dreamer is about. And it, you know, the sort of gratification and imagination activation that takes place through it. Um, but, you know, after playing it, um, and as we're getting ready to part ways with it, you know, I'm not going to go to a door and think, okay, lock is false. Let's go into the kitchen and make a salad or a sandwich, whatever. Um, but there's something about the malleability here that is basically inspiring. You know, usually the coding we've been running into in games, it's far more brutalist, say, for uh, Baba is you. You know, we know the deal with code going into these games is we want to be challenged. We want to be limited, um, and we've talked so much about other games in here. I guess one other thing I wanted to mention was just this whole way of puzzles being derived by copy-pasting elements from one object to another. Uh, I mean, I think obviously it's a necessary governor on limiting the complexity. That is the complexity for the developer and allowing for all sorts of countless ways um, we as players might be able to edit stuff directly to Havoc. We could sort of uh, cause... Um, as you say, it isn't letting us go all the way. Now, I understand the logistical challenges of that for the developer. Um, I think the one time I've seen that freedom really done in a really empowering and thorough way is uh, Detroit Become Human, which I'm not sure if you've played it, but it allows for all sorts of possibilities of things you might reasonably do as a player, things you'd have to be very lucky to do, and a bunch of things you would not even think to do. It's one of the few games where I'd go on YouTube and look up like, wow, you could do this there. Um, they allow for it. Um, but I think, you know, in all games, 
you spend quite a bit of time in prescribed lanes doing prescribed actions. And I think the intent here is to make players believe programming isn't as difficult as they think it is. But I can't help but feel a little misled, not in a bad way. I mean, I don't know if it's skepticism, maybe that's not the word for it, maybe <laughs> to assume that there's more going on than what you see. Is it is it paranoia? What's 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 the word for it? Tuesday, the 2nd of May, at 11.53 a.m. Tuesday, the 2nd of May, at 11.55 a.m. Hey, David. Kind of inconceivable that uh, you're not answering your phone right now, but whatever. Um... I have played Detroit Become Human. I, I know what you mean. It is a very expansive game. Uh, I think David Cage, that's kind of his vibe, and maybe he, whatever, perfected it with, with that game, which I, which I also enjoyed. Uh, the thing about games like that, of course, is they, they become huge because every new possibility is new art assets, new writing, new voice acting, new programming... Um, and on and on. And so if you have a big, bushy possibility tree, um, you're really asking for a lot of trouble. And that's why a lot of games don't have a lot of possibilities, or they focus on systems that kind of generate possibilities within them. Uh, that's probably too big a subject for right now. The only thing I, I kind of wanted to make sure I said is this game is very, very beautiful. I think the lighting in particular is is pretty phenomenal. It doesn't have much of anything to do with the code, but I, I do remark on it every time I wake up and make coffee in its virtual world. Um, and yeah, as we've been saying, I think the game points in a direction that is extremely powerful and extremely interesting, and I look forward to seeing more of this kind of thing in the future. Review ended. Tuesday, the 2nd of May, at 1.04 p.m. Reviewing games? No, that's that's no, that's never what I thought of um, what we're doing here, Pippin. Because I believe that in the end, we're still just two naive kids playing video games and talking about them on an answering machine. End of messages. Thank you for calling GameFin. For more information, please hang up and dial GameFin dot life. Goodbye.